You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's edition of SpyCast. This week's guest is CIA legend Jack Devine. Jack was in Chile when Salvador Allende was overthrown in 1973. He oversaw the covert action to drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan in the 1980s. He found himself in the Iran branch during the Iran-Contra controversy. And he knew American traitor Aldrich Ames from way back when. Oh, I almost forgot he helped hunt down down Pablo Escobar. So as you can see, he's had a totally uneventful career. Jack and I sat down to talk about countering Russian aggression, the subject of his new book, Spymaster's Prism. We also spoke covert action and what he's been up to since he left the agency as acting director of operations. I hope you enjoy this week's installment of Overachievers, designed to make you feel insecure. I just wanted to start off with your new book. Could you tell us why you wrote Spy Master's Prism and what it's all about? Andrew, it's great to be on the show, getting right to the point. I wrote a book, Good Hunting, a couple of years ago, and I started writing another one about the Cold War predecessors of mine, and uh, they were interesting characters. And I started to write, it was going to be a nice little book, and then the elections came in 2016, and it just flashed back to me, the Cold War and the Russians and this new environment we're in, which is operating inside the United States in the action part. And I thought that warranted more attention. I think we spent a lot of time in the election period talking about personalities and people and, and, and so on. And we weren't looking at what I think is a core problem, and that is, unlike the Cold War, Putin and his administration are actually operating, trying to create dissidents and weaken the base, political base in the United States. I think that's a big story that isn't adequately understood. So I thought I'd write the history and go back and forth between today and the past and intelligence operations and the people involved in it and how it all comes together of the moment, so to speak. That's the real reason for it. I I have a very well-thumbed copy of Good Hunting. (laughs) (laughs) One of the questions that I had was, you picked Russia as the theme of your book. Now, Russia's been in the news a lot recently, but 
Some people would say that China's a bigger long-term threat to the United States. So I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about why Russia and not China? Well, I think in the case of the China story, I think you used the word long-term. I think that's the case. They are the preeminent political, uh, economic, military force that we're going to have to contend with over the horizon. The difference is the Russians are involved in intelligence, uh, not only just intelligence operations in the United States, the Chinese are as well, but the Chinese aren't using it to cause political problems in the United States, not because they're Boy Scouts, but because it would impact on the bigger economic relationship, and it isn't part of their strategy. So, and everyone's focused on China, and I think that's a good thing. But in the process, they're missing what I consider an urgent issue in the Russians in the United States, and also a better appreciation that we don't have ground rules in the cyber war like we had on many other things during the Cold War. And the Russians are much more aggressive in the warfare part of it in terms of doing things than the Chinese. The Chinese have a very robust collection capability. And again, I think we get we can be distracted. Andrew, if you'd entertain a, a comment on just the Russian strategy for a second. Absolutely. They actually have a strategy. Putin has a strategy. It's a Cold War strategy. I think he's executing his strategy very well. He's punching above Russia's weight. Its GDP is smaller than Germany and Spain's, but he's punching above his weight and he's carrying out his strategy effectively. It's just a bad strategy, not only for the world, but for Russia as well. But, you know, he comes at it with a Cold War mentality that somehow the United States is implacably an adversary that he has to weaken the countries around him. He has to regain control of the Ukraine because Russia without the Ukraine is a much smaller player economically, politically, and militarily. So he's warm water ports. I mean, these are all themes of the Cold War and trying to cause problems in Venezuela or at least playing in those those grounds. It's a bad it's a bad strategy. But the commander in chief of the armed forces, I believe it was twenty fourteen, Gerasimov came up with this hybrid strategy, which means you use propaganda, disinformation, political action to weaken your enemy. So they're not trying to create a revolution in the United States. They're trying to weaken our political process. And as I look back to 2016, and you get away from the stirring up of that immediate period and going after the Russians, I think what we didn't didn't appreciate is just how effective that operation was. While it indeed impacted on the election around the edges. But more importantly, we've been snapping at each other's ankles for the past four years, rooted much around what the Russians did, right? So I don't think they, they knew how big their operation would play out in our political process. And it wasn't on election day. It was the aftermath. But it's part of a strategy. In other words, this isn't a one-off you know, let's dabble and have a little fun in American elections. This has a, a strategy, not to destabilize the United States because they don't want to have to deal with the uncertainty of that, but they want to keep it politically disruptive. In fact, they use the word chaos o- over and over again, and chaos is too strong of a word. But I think this is the point that uh, we need to pay attention to, and I don't think we have an understanding with the Russians. It's the one thing the the audience may not understand is – that is what we did in the Cold War. Despite all the James Bond movies, 
You see, I was not, after Stalin, was not involved in causing political problems inside Russia. And with few exceptions, neither were the Russians inside the United States. It was one of the ground rules we had under the Moscow rules. Tell us a little bit more about the strategy. Where does it come from? What are the drivers? Why is Russia doing what it's doing? Well, I think the key, I have a chapter in the book called Spy Master President, right? Not hard to figure out who that is, but I have a quote underneath it. There is no such thing as a former KGB officer, Vladimir Putin. So in his own words, he works from a KGB mentality. I could write one saying there's no such thing as a former CIA officer, Jack Devine. But I know it doesn't mean we're on the payroll of the CIA, but it means we have a way of looking at things. And people have to understand that he wanted to be in the KGB at 17. He eventually got in, was quite successful, but was still fairly junior. And he wasn't assigned to Paris or London, Hong Kong, Tokyo or Mexico City. He was in Dresden. And if you wanted to find a dismal place to be in the Cold War, go to Dresden. And it's East Germany. And Le Carre, you know, writes his books based on the East German world. Carla, you know, was actually Marcus Wolf, who was probably the most famous spy master of the Cold War. He had 100,000 spies. But that's the environment in which Putin made his bones, so to speak. And the Soviet Union collapsed while he was there. And he remembers destroying the papers. And he's a Russian nationalist, which is an understanding. I'm an American nationalist, right? So I understand it, but it was a tremendous blow. He says this over and over again in his writings and, and comments. So his destiny was to try and recreate a Russia that he understood. It's a Cold War Russia. And we're in a Cold War too, and no one seems to recognize it, right? And But, you know, because it's in the cyber world, so it's not as visible. But I would say the Ukraine and his adventures, his adventurous and aggressive behavior there is very visible and very much in a Cold War style. You send in covert action asset, green men, if you will, and he took over the Crimea. So the strategy and the thinking is rooted deeply in the Cold War. And, and I think it was an effective strategy for the Cold War, for them and us. But I'm frankly where I sit today. I, I think that a reset is better, and you know we ought to have a you know, Russia ought to be part of Europe. But it's not ideologically opposed to us. They don't have any ideology. They have nothing to sell. I mean, who wants the Russian model? I mean, there isn't any. So the stumbling block is this mindset that somehow we're in this. He's in a struggle with us, and the the problem with the reset. I served in Argentina, if you might remember from your earlier readings, and. Not only have great beef, but I always found the tango to be a fascinating national dance. But there's that old old movie saying, takes two to tango, you know. And I think of you know, Putin and, yes, reset. But if the other person doesn't feel like dancing, the tango is a terribly ugly dance if you do it yourself. So I think that's where we are. I don't think we've, we've addressed how are we, how are we going to deal with this challenge. I mean, if he's going to stay this course, by all means, try a charm offensive. It just won't work because he's already told you, listen, I'm a spy master, pour on the charm, but I've got my agenda here right beside me and I'm sticking to it. When you walk into KGB and the CIA headquarters, when you put your badge in, I think they infect it with some new DNA and you're, you're either blessed with it or stuck with it, How you, however you look at it. I consider myself 
blessed with whatever they did to make me a true believer. But so he's he has that in his, his body politic. So you spent a large part of your career engaging with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But for listeners that maybe that didn't have that experience or are a little bit rusty, could you just tell us what the contours of that strategy are? What does that strategy look like? It was the idea of containing their aggressive behavior, finding our allies around the world that would support us and try and block them. Now, the one thing I, I would point out, uh, I'm not a big fan of putting armed armies on the ground. This is why I'm an advocate and strong supporter of covert action. If you know you apply what I consider the right principles, people can disagree about them. But one of the things we did in the Cold War was we didn't put armies on the ground. We worked with surrogates. We had allies and people on the ground. And that's the story of Afghanistan and the struggle. And that is we worked with the indigenous Mujahideen to drive them out. And I still believe that's the best formula for problems. But in the 21st century, we've leaped ahead where we tend to put armies in, you know, before I would put them in, let me put it that way. And one of the principles of, of covert action is, you know, you've tried everything short of war. And that's where I think there's an apprehension about using covert action. But I see it as a vehicle for preventing heavier cost of life and, and treasure for the U.S. And if you look at the Afghan program to drive the Russians out, it was a very modest program. I don't think I know the number, but I'm not going to say it because I'm not sure it's classified. But under 200 people were involved in it. You know, in the second Afghan struggle after 9-11, you know, we talked about thousands of troops and very large, whether you want to say, $2 trillion or $1.5 trillion for Afghanistan, I think between Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, you've got 5 to $6 trillion spent on the use of force. So I want to come back to the Cold War strategy was one of using covert action to try and counter them. And they were trying to do the same thing using their surrogates and trying to combat us wherever ever they could. We can talk later about why I think we prevailed in the end. I just want to touch on the idea of Moscow rules. I know when we spoke on the phone, you brought it up and you bring it up in your writing. Could you just tell the listeners a little bit more about those Moscow rules and what they are? I think if you if you go online and look, what will most often pop up is Moscow rules, and it'll tell you how to be a spy in Moscow. In other words, don't wear a Nationals baseball hat, right? Don't speak in loud English, right? I mean, you know, I'm being a tad... Not sarcastic, but these are real things. I mean, people operating there, you have to understand that you're under constant surveillance and how you stay alert. So that's one level. And I think that's really good for a practitioner of spying. If any of your audience wants to be a spy, and I think a lot of them aspire to it. Right? But I mean, you know, this is a handbook to tell you how to be, uh, how to operate if you're going to operate in Moscow, but you better practice. The Russians are pretty good. But there's a set of rules that you can't find in writing. There is no book that can catalog for you the Moscow rules. It's just so when I entered into the agency, and I remember a number of the senior people I dealt with one way or the other, kept referring to the Moscow rules as an understanding. And the understanding was there are some things that we knew we couldn't do against each other and shouldn't do. And one was, say, counterfeiting money. And the reason you don't counterfeit money, and they didn't counterfeit it, we both had the capacity to do it, you would actually destroy the world financial system. So you didn't do it. 
we didn't rough up their officers and they didn't rough up ours. That was an understanding. There were a few exceptions. Uh, I'll point that out. But by and large, there, was, there were understandings. But the one, and again, this comes back to a fundamental rule, and that is not meddling in the internal political affairs of each other's country. We could meddle against each other around the world, and history can document all of those instances. But that was one of the rules. So, And I think whenever there was a major problem, and I can think of one in the Afghanistan program, and that problem was we were arming 125,000 fighters, and, the, and we put the Stinger missile in. And the Russians never made it the marsh. They never said, hey, you're misbehaving, because they knew this is what you do in the struggle. But there was a group of enterprising Mujahideen, had nothing to do with us, rolled a truck in the, one of the stands and had it full of the Quran books. And the Russians got very upset and made a demarche on it. And I thought, wow, you mean, you, this is really a big deal. But when I start to look at it years later, I realized that what their concern was all the stands have strong Muslim populations. And they thought we were now meddling in their territory and causing trouble. So when I come back to the Moscow rules, it's in that sentiment. And of course, you know, we said, look, that's not us, it's not the game being played here. So I think we need similar understanding in the cyber arena. And I, I don't think we have, to the best of my knowledge, and I go by what I see more than anything else, I don't see... Well, they clearly are not adhering to the old rules. And if we've had an understanding and agreed that we're, we're not going to do it, I haven't seen the response on our side that's commensurate with their, their activity. Imagine you get the ear of the person on their Russia desk or the chief of mission or the head of espionage for the American government and Russia. What advice would you give them as, as someone that has a lot of experience dealing with this kind of thing? Well, I would say buy as many copies of uh, Spymaster Prism as you can. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, what, what <laughs> okay. I really would say is, why don't you ponder my point? My point is, I really think there is a receptive world out here for you in Russia, and you can be part of it. I don't, I don't see any inherent reason why we can't have a strong alliance with Russia. And over the long term, you know, Russia is a, a nation state well defined again. Why don't, you know, why don't you consider a different alternative? I think that would be a message that I would give. I'm sure my colleagues and people in the diplomatic world have tried to say this in a hundred different ways. So it might be like bringing Coles to Newcastle on this, but I think that's the big, I don't think there's any inherent reason. In other words, in the case of the communists, there was an illogical reason we couldn't come to compromise on, right? They were out, and but this is a nation state. We're a nation state. You know, they love their country. We love our country. A lot of reasons to do business. Why? I, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. And that they would fiddle around in our election is stunning. Stunning in the context of what I'm saying. I think that that's part of the story that's often overlooked. You know, one of the reasons that the United States and Russia were so antagonistic was that there was this ideological competition that with two mutually incompatible systems. But now that's gone. Um, so we're in a different 
landscape. I just want to jump cut back to the beginning of your career. How did you end up in the world of intelligence, Jack? Well, first, I would note that, you know, for many years, I really didn't like the James Bond movies. I mean, I just thought this is silly. You're, you're, you're somehow diminishing my real being. But then I thought, wait, <laughs> who wouldn't want to be viewed as a dashing James Bond, omnipotent, never had to write a report, never had to uh, do homework with the kids, <laughs> you, know, you know, all these things that are really part of real espionage in life. So I come from a blue collar family in Philadelphia, and I think I'm the first one that went to university. You know, none of us traveled around the world. I didn't have five languages. I wasn't in an embassy anywhere, an attache in our family. So I really didn't fit the model. It remains a little bit baffling to me how I got in. And maybe they had second thoughts along the way. So what happened is I, when I finished graduate school in Philadelphia, I, I started teaching. And I'm a frustrated teacher even to this day in that both of my books are designed with an edu educational orientation to tell you more about the intelligence business to future practitioners, current practitioners, but people just have an interest in what, what makes it really work and tick. So I was teaching perfectly happy. I was probably going to go on and try and teach university level. And my wife gave me for either a birthday or anniversary a, a book by David Wise called The Invisible Government, written in the 60s. And it's all about how the CIA controls the world and running all these terrible operations. Now, the thing that is interesting about it like many people had a different reaction. It's, wow, that's a really cool place. I mean, it's really interesting. They're saving their country. They're fighting these communists. So I took a pen. I mean, people actually used to write with pens. I wrote a letter, one pager saying, hey, you know, cool outfit. Can I join? And put a stamp on it, mailed it, CIA, Washington. That's exactly the way it went. Today, you have to go on a computer. You got to do 75 things. I sent this letter. A couple of months later, I get a note in the mail saying, well, go to 12th and Chestnut and knock on the door three times and you'll be interviewed. And I did. I was interviewed by a guy who I thought was a, a spy because he looked like it. You know, he had the slick black hair like Dick Helms, who was the director. He had tweed suit, brown pinto, and a pipe. I mean, who smokes a pipe nowadays? No, I'm not offending anybody, I hope. But So he looked like the Alan Dulles, the, the way he was supposed to look. Turns out years later, I realized he was an HR person, which is a very important job, but it's not the same as being a spy master. Out of a coincidence, Years later, when I was helping on a, a history thing for the agency, they dug out my original letter. <laughs> and I think I've improved writing. That's all I'm going to say on that. But then I saw the letter by the guy that assessed me. I always, th I always thought I must have impressed them. That's the only way I could have got in. The letter was okay. It said, look, he looks like a pretty good guy. Maybe he'll fit. Maybe he won't. <laughs> Let's move him on to the next level. A little, a little bit of a downer. But it, it's. I did end up in the agency, why I went there and how I got in. I remember the first day when I went to the farm, not the first day because, you know, I spent time getting ready and training and had a job before I went to the farm. But when I went to the farm, I pulled in, I had a Volkswagen about six years old. One door was black. It was gray. Guy pulls in beside me with a Porsche. You know, I'd been to Yale. And I thought, well, this is interesting. So anyway, the career was, a, for me, when I wrote the books, when I write the books, and I think back, I actually believe that my DNA fit the agency. They may disagree with hindsight, but 
I actually believe that I belong there and something about my mindset, my approach to things and my sense of mission that coincided. That's how I got got into the agency. I, I walked in. I wasn't even sure. I didn't know what I was getting into. But subconsciously, somehow, that emotional IQ as it relates to yourself, I must have seen a pathway. And the second thing I would say, when I looked back over my career, half of it was in traditional espionage and operations that are all familiar with. You can't write about them because they involve sources and it never becomes public. But I spent more than a usual amount of time on the action part. They all become public, so it enables me to write without problems with the, the agency. But I ended up in Latin America. And I'll just add this last note to get the trajectory. I mean, I didn't know a thing about Latin America. I didn't speak Spanish. Why am I in Latin America? Well, I put in for Russia because I thought that's, you know, communists are there. That's Russia. I should go there. But if you're in Russia, you're not meeting people. You're, you know, you're not meeting agents. You're picking up messages and spending weeks preparing to do that. And it's a very professional task. But I was meant for the action part. So when I get around to the interview, I'm talking to the guy, and he said, oh, no, you're too tall to be in Russia. And I said, well, you know, I'm six foot five. Okay, maybe I'm too tall. But it's an idiotic statement because, you know, I sit back and say, wait a minute. What does it matter how big you are? You're, you're supposed to do this deftly. In other words, you're invisible. It doesn't matter what you look like. But he took me by the arm over the Latin American. He said, you belong here. Now, I was too young and not yet brash enough to say, wait a minute, you told me I'm too tall for Russia, but I'm okay for Latin America, right? So I ended up there. And then by circumstances, uh, you know, they put me on a covert, actually, I was on a small desk at Dominican Republic desk, but I quickly was put on as the assistant to the chief of covert action for Latin America. And then lo and behold, the Chile crisis blows up. And next thing you know, I'm in the Chile task force. And by then I'd learned enough Spanish to go work in, in the field. Some people have fluency, but mine was work. I couldn't tell jokes in Spanish, nor did I understand them, but I got, I got a little better. So that's, you know, your career trajectory was, was it looked ha haphazard. Only when I look back and I see the rest of my career, whether I was running to it or they were pulling to me certain types of jobs. I only asked for one job and that was because I was trying to get out of another one. The rest of them, I let the agency drive me where they could, but there was some sort of, you know, Moscow rule sort of understand, understanding somehow that we're going to use this guy over here and a series of different managers. And you look back over your career and I was mentored and I'm sure I thanked everybody that helped me. But I didn't th say enough. I didn't say, gosh, you really, I, that would have been a ter terrible failure if you didn't hold me up here a little bit. Writing the book, it allowed me to go back, and because I did interviews with so many people, many of them are now gone, that I could personally call them and say, you know, you made a big, a big difference. So what I'm saying about the career part, you know, right, study Chinese because it's a hot issue or whatever, but you're going to be agents, you might find out they're going to steer you in a direction that's different different and it may be good for you but don't go into the i wouldn't recommend my my approach which is just walk in the door i do think to the degree that you can go to the things you like and i did that by accident you know, but if you can do it with forethought you know have at it we'll be right back after this 
And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. When I look at the history of your career, uh, it's almost a little bit like Forrest Gump in the sense that you think... <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that, Andrew. That's a, that was a, a stunning uh, a, a, a compliment. <laughs> well, there's a lot of people, by the way, that agree with you. I mean that in the sense that you always you, you keep finding yourself in historical, important historical moments. So you're in Chile when the democratically elected president Salvador Allende is overthrown. You find yourself in the Afghan task force when stingers are introduced to the battlefield. You find yourself chief of the Iran branch right in the middle of Iran-Contra. So you always find yourself in the center of those events. So I wondered to, to start off with, tell us a little bit more about Allende. Is there, is there anything you can tell the listeners that isn't in the public record or the mate that is not common? Fortunately, there's, there's a great deal in the public record. And it was investigated very thoroughly by the House Committee the church, and the Senate Committees. And the Senate Committee wrote a, a, a comprehensive review. And when I was, and this was 75, a couple of years after the coup, and I, was, I looked at it and I thought, oh, this is outrageous that they're, being, they're writing all of this and, and here's my cable. Whoever thought as a young man my cable would appear in a public document. Thank, thank God I spelled Santiago right. But with hindsight, when I read back when I was doing the research, it actually was a very thorough job. They actually described when you got away with the fanfare of the guns and all that, when you looked at it, it's really a very accurate history. And, you know, you can distort it if you like. I mean, not you, but anyone can try and distort it. But the, the record's there. And what the record will show is where I started, which was there was an overarching view by the President of the United States and shared by, by many in the Congress, not just Republicans. The consensus broke when the coup came. But before the coup, there was a lot of consensus that this is a bad thing for Latin America that you have a government, and you said was Democratic elected, and that's true, with the plurality of 38 36, I think it was 38%, 62% are already against you, voted against you. And of your 32%, you know, high percentage of the Communist Party. So there was reason to be concerned about it, right? And in the context of the Cold War, the question is, what do you do about it? Do you use strategic patience when you sit around and hope it goes away? Or do you do something? And uh, I would have recommended, and I was comfortable with being involved in political action, supporting the democratic elements in the newspapers and uh, what I would call interest groups, uh, 
commercial businessmen and so on groups. The coup is a different issue. And this gets at the hard core of covert action. And one of the first principles, and I, it's not that I draw on contemporary philosophers, I dwell on the theologians of the 13th century that have a view of a just war. And I apply it to covert action. But one of the first things is you have an intrinsically evil enemy, national security threat. But the second one is you've tried everything else short of war. So I think it was premature in those principles for the White House to have instructed the Santiago CIA station to try and block through a coup Allende taking power after the election. The chief of station there, can't mention his name, it's still sealed, a very experienced World War II veteran OSS, very talented, great writer, wrote back saying, this is a bad idea, bloodshed, and by the way, the conditions aren't right, isn't going to work, really rethink it. And they wrote him a message saying, if you can't do it, we'll find somebody else, right? So the CIA went on record early on saying this was not a bad, it was a bad idea. And people get confused today because they confuse that wrong-footed covert action operation to try and block Allende, which failed. And there was a terrible incident, which was not tied to the CIA's activities, it was independent, but it had a negative impact, a very serious negative impact, in that a group supported by Patria Libertad and a general Robert, retired General Robert Vio. And they tried to kidnap the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And I would ask, well, why are you going to do that? I mean, I didn't ask because I didn't know about it. No one knew about it. They did it, and they killed him in the process. At that point, the entire country got behind Allende and said, enough is enough. Let's not have this. So the country was united that let Allende in. And immediately after that, there was a cable from Henry Kissinger saying, all coup plotting will cease and desist. No more coup plotting. Collect intelligence, work the political, try and defend what we got there, hold the line, but no more coup plotting. People do not focus on this when they read history or see movies. And I will tell you with certitude that the CIA office there was not engaged in plotting with the military in the 1973 coup. And I go into, the, into my book, it's my master's prison. When I talk about how did we find out about the coup? If you're plotting with the coup plotters, you don't need to find out about the coup. You're part of it, right? And we actually, our assessment was that Allende was going to last until the end of his term, but he'll lose that election and we're going to help that happen, right? But what really happened is there was a group of tank commanders. 80 soldiers and 18 tanks pulled up in front of the palace and the commander chief of the armed forces came out. This was in June of 73 and said, go back to your tanks, boys. We're in charge. We in the office and in CIA in general felt that was a good testimony of Allende's durability in June. What we didn't know was that day, the military began plotting his overthrow because not because of the shortage of food, not because of the demonstrations, not because of the economy. Their institution, the military institution, was starting to crumble and discipline was breaking down. 
all the other conditions prevailed for sure, and that's what caused that. So we didn't know that, but the tempo was clearly getting more and more tense as we got into the end of and into the end of the summer. But we still did not believe a coup was imminent, nor does any of the official finished intelligence in the CIA suggest that. But right before the coup, I think it was around a couple of days before, I received the first report the U.S. government received about a coup taking place that will take place on September 11th. I actually didn't get the report. My wife, I couldn't be reached. I was meeting someone in a nice Italian restaurant. And the fellow that had the report was heading toward the airport. He was no stop for go other than he was going to stop and pass this message to me. But he got a hold of my wife and said, there will be a coup on September 11th that involves the Army. It'll start in Valparaiso, start at 7, Army, Navy, Air Force, and a carbonary. And it'll be advertised on Radio Agriculture at 7 o'clock. That is the first report. And it went by critic. And the analyst in Washington didn't believe it, that that was going, going to happen. The reason I mention this is it's so fixed in people's mind that somehow we were plotting the truth of the matter. We, only, we found out about it. And then we did have other reporting coming in shortly thereafter. So there's this mixing of the plots and the mixing of the different types of covert action, one that I'm comfortable with and one that I'm not comfortable with. So. I think the students of it should read them because the ingredients of, of both of those circumstances are public. They're in the public record if you just read a, a little bit. So you're saying that the methodology as that it was the CIA that overthrew IND, but the reality is that the CIA was, was not involved or it wasn't involved in the way that people think it was involved. 1970. It attempted to organize a coup that failed, right? But it was against its better judgment, and they made that clear. All covert action operations have been approved by the President of the United States. I wait for someone to point out one that wasn't. All of them were approved in writing after the mid-'70s. So the president gave instruction to be done, and that failed. And that was a bad covert action operation instigated by the White House. We can talk about Iran. Contra another White House instigated thing. In 73, the military acted independent. The CIA was not involved in the coup plotting with the military people that overthrew the government. We collected intelligence about the military. We supported the opposition. And so it's two qualitative differences. We were not involved in 73, wrong-footedly involved at White House instruction in 70. No one bothers to spend time to to divide and split the baby. And you were in Santiago at this time? Right. It was my first assignment. I arrived in 71. Allende had been elected. But I was also on the CIA task force. That's a, a group that's put together. It's not a permanent office for a particular period of time for a crisis. So I was there as a junior person. And my responsibility was to write up all the cables coming from around the world and get it into a bulletized format that the chief of the task force could take to upstairs or to downtown. And because of that, I have firsthand exposure to the failed coup and the ingredients that went into that. And I was actually in the office 
and received the first report about it in the 70s. So there is, my experience on it goes beyond just my time there. And going from that task force to the CIA Afghan task force, could you tell us a little bit more about how you lived through those events? So the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan on Christmas Day 1979, and then you find yourself basically at the helm when the Stingers are introduced to the battlefield. So just walk us through that journey and tell our listeners a little bit more about that experience. So at this time, I was in, in Latin America, and I was in Argentina, which is noted earlier. And they had a program in Central America, and I had a disagreement, again, on how we were pursuing it. I was against the Sandinistas, part of the Cold War strategy, blocked them, right? But I, my view was we should be working inside, working with the political capabilities. I never saw as viable the building of an army of Contras being trained by Argentines and, and the, the borders around Nicaragua to change the circumstances. And, you know, I had been asked earlier, and this is, the, I asked for Argentina because I didn't want to take over the Central American Task Force. They asked me to take it over, and I said, look, I'm not comfortable with where we're headed here. And they said, oh, don't worry, you know, we're okay. We'll accept your, your different views. I said, that's great, but I have to execute. So they weren't happy with me. So I've had enough in Central America, so I decided, well, I'll go to the Middle East. And that's a, a change of pace. So I did, and I ended up in Iran, the Iran branch, only to find out that the Iran branch, you know, is drug into the arms for for hostages and that the money illegally was diverted into the Central American program. I couldn't get away from it. But I got a break in 85. They changed out the the chief in Islamabad, and they changed out the, the fellow that was running the Afghan Tesla. And what people don't realize is that there was a view in the establishment in Washington that the Mujahideen was losing. You can't beat the Russians. They're 10 feet tall. Are we just going to keep just bleeding this thing? This doesn't seem to be the right course. Let's give it one more big push. So the budget tripled. And so I was put in charge of it, and we, we had to expand, and we ran into the problem of supporting 125 fight, 125,000 fighters with Soviet-style weapons. In other words, you couldn't use our depot and ship out our Army, U.S. Army stamped material. Uh, and I had to get mules, 9,000 mules that I had to march you know, every year across China because Tennessee mules, just in case you're not a mule man, you know, don't work in Afghanistan. A lot of people had to learn that. The, the hard, the, the hard way, but we were bogged down because the Russians had put their special forces in, and they had put in their counterpart at the time of a black hawk, Hein helicopters, and they suppressed everything. And we had tried SAMs, every type of missile thing. None of them really were very effective. And then I remember being down in the White House for a mock demonstration of a Stinger missile. It was stunning. They fire it to the left, and the targets. You know, 180 degrees to the right, and it just makes a 180-degree turn and hits it. It's like, wow, heat-seeking. And at the meeting, I said, we ought to have this in the fray. Now, what I didn't know is everybody at the table had been wanting to put it in for a long time, but the agency was opposed to it. No one told me that. So I went and said, well, let's do it. Next thing you know, I'm over at the Defense Department asking for the – the president signed the approval to do that and get the stingers in. And the first – it was fired in September of 1986. I think it was the 23rd, somewhere around there. And 
the first three missiles, the first one, no one knows this, uh, at least not a lot of people. The first one hit the ground and bounced and it was $80,000 and so on. Divine sent us another piece of, uh, I won't use the word, but let's say useless material, but it wasn't that. And But the next three hit the, the targets. We had satellite imagery and I, I brought it to the director. And there was a sense when I was sitting there with them that that was the end of the war. And the reason it was the end of the war is that helicopters were shot down is that the Russians started flying so far above the missile that all the other weapons plowed in. And I think the Russians went back because they introduced something. We introduced something more complicated. They introduced something more complicated. So I think it was at that point that Gorbachev thought, well, let's cut our losses. So I think a few times in history where a single weapon has such an impact, not only on a war, I think it had a, uh, an impact on the Russian thinking, not as a single weapon system, but because of what happened, that they began, what what we saw then was the beginning of the end of the, the Soviet Union. So it's of great historic importance. And again, the model was different than some of the models today, which was the Mujahideen, don't never get into covert action if you don't have people on the ground that believe in the mission. You know, don't dabble. Don't give $50,000 to carry out a billion-dollar operation. Have strong allies. We had major allies that helped in that war. Make sure you have bipartisan support because if you don't, you're going to get wrapped around the axle later on. So there's a whole set of things which I delineate in the books. And for the introduction of the Stingers, tell us a little bit more about what that's like to find yourself the head of the Afghan task force. Um, how do you deal with all the stresses and strains and worries and so forth? How do you try to affect change on the ground? So for for those of us that only have seen this stuff through the movies, what was it like to be Jack Devine in this time period? Well, one of the things you said, you've seen it in movies, and most people refer to Charlie Wilson's war, right? Everybody loves a movie, right? And I knew Charlie well. I traveled with Charlie. And I think he was, people played him as a buffoon, and he really wasn't. He was an Annapolis graduate. He was a substantive guy. He genuinely believed in fighting communism, a Democrat from Texas. We had dinner in New York at Sparks Restaurant. Here's a plug for Sparks. But the reason we went there isn't because of the steak. Paul Castellano, the head of the mafia, was gunned down at the doorsteps. So Charlie was romantic, thought, let's not go to a steakhouse. Let's go to a place where the mafia guy gets killed. So we go and we're sitting there and across the table and we had our spouses with us. And I had left the agency by then. And uh, he reached across the table, you know, friendly arm on arm. Jack, I know you didn't like the book, but God, you're going to hate the movie. <laughs> so he knew that I knew that he was a very important guy. He was very important down on the hill, but he didn't have any. Very, he didn't have a lot to do with how the war was run, how you got the weapons. I mean, he was, he was strong and a very important face on the account. But people need to understand how covert action is really done. It's not a flamboyant congressman with Julie Roberts and a CIA guy running around off the off the reservation. That isn't how it's done. It was a U.S. government program, and it was, you know, under strict guidelines and dozens of analysts and people that understood how to make uh, saddles for mules and the weapon systems and how the fire. There's many of these things I knew nothing about. 
the GPS system also went in under my tenure. Where no one knew about it. I wasn't smart enough to invest in it. <laughs> I'd own your I'd own your station or museum. But the point is, it takes a lot of people. And there's if I ever get a chance like today, you know, people like me get associated with it, and people throw flowers on you or mud, depending on which issue it is. But one of the key people in these are they don't make good movie material. The logs people, logistic people, you know, how do you get these weapons? How do you, you know, it's such dedicated people that can do, well, you know, think of how you ship out. How do, how do you get weapons? Get them on boats and, and Toyota trucks. And I would be briefed. The next thing you know, you know, we'd have a hundred trucks. So you don't get that in a movie and it doesn't make for a good movie or a lot of people sitting around, well, how many rounds of ammunition and this and that and, and the analysis process. So, but I, I don't want them to think that, you know, you can just do this stuff on a whim. You have to have plumbing put in and it takes time and it may be, it may be a plumbing doesn't work. So you don't do it. So I, I think I want to capture that. And Mill Bearden, who is the chief in, in Islamabad, a, a great officer, wrote a cable, and I was in Rome at the time. The Russians had just left on the bridge. And he sent out a cable saying, we won. Okay? So, but that's the, whether you call it winning, I mean, certainly from my perspective, I think the Russians saw it that way. The word is we, and that meant it's a collective, organized, thoughtful, it's one of the better examples of covert action. But if you're giving out medals, I got a whole list of people that are totally unrecognized, never won a medal, don't care about a medal. And I, I'm not, I casually mentioned the the saddle maker because I was interviewed by a fellow on the radio who said, you don't know me, but I was down in Central America. They came to me because I knew how to make saddles and I made some of those saddles. So whoever knew, right? So my point was, I liked, I said, the movie's good, you know, it makes Charlie look good and so on. But but this is serious business. The whole business is people's lives are on the line. If you look at the Bay of Pigs, part of the problem there was the hubris that Jack Kenny read too many of Ian Fleming's books. You have to have a sense of restraint. And, and this goes to the spy master's mentality, the prism. You have to have a hard edge about not what you want, but what is what do you want, but what's realistic? What can get done? So, you know, your point about how did it play out, I, I think it's in that context that that I would focus. And it's actually my, my message is this is serious stuff, and it's not to be used on all occasions by any stretch of the imagination. There are places today where people would like to have a regime change. You better take a really serious look at what the prospects are before you start dabbling. Right. And don't and out of desperation, sometimes they turn to the agency in desperation. And the agency has a tradition of can do. And I can do it. I can do it. And you have to slow that down sometimes. Do we want to do it? You know, can we do it? So and then there's a point of courage. When you don't think it can be done, like that fellow down in Santiago who I have great regards for you. You take a pen and you write and say it won't work. And then it's up to the policymakers to take the responsibilities and say should. And if any listeners have never seen a Stinger missile launch tube, we have one here at the museum. Well, Charlie Wilson had one in his office, which I always resented. 
because he never had a thing to do with this. He actually, at one point, it wasn't his fault, but others, and they'll go nameless, told him, tell the Pakistanis to tell the Americans you don't, you don't want it in the fray out there. So Charlie was trying to be helpful, but he had nothing to do with the stinger. And whatever reason, somebody felt he ought to have it hanging in his office. So you're kind of competent. Well, you don't have it because Charlie's um, sadly has passed on because he was a very special person in Congress, uh, you know, that there are fewer of the Charlie Wilsons. I'm, I'm not talking about his flamboyant party life, but but his his, in, his sense of dedication to this country and taking the course of action that's best for the country and not worrying too much about his particular district on that issue. At the end of that movie, there's it goes forward to the post-9-11 period and, and then there's the whole part about it was a great operation during the 80s, but we effed up the end game. I wondered what your thoughts were when you watched that or what your view is on that thesis of... I think there's quite to the contrary. And again, another place where the story is wrong. Charlie and I actually agreed as the war was coming to an end. And we lost lost out on, we were going to use money to try and do nation building, you know, covertly and overtly in Afghanistan. And a number of my colleagues and others said, no, uh, it isn't going to make a difference. So I always felt or for several years that there was a missed opportunity. But I would tell you, looking with hindsight, it wasn't a missed opportunity. And one of the refinements in my view on covert action, you can't force feed democracy. You can't force feed communism. If you want me to give advice to the, my friends again, the point was when we left, you know, the people in Afghanistan had to want a different approach. And we should not, we certainly shouldn't use covert means to help force feed democracy and bring about change. It's the first mistake you make when you go into a into a country and you think you want to do something so they change their ways. They really you really need to work with it. When you find somebody that's in trouble and shares a common interest and willing to put their life on the line, then you have a place for covert action. So I think I was wrong. It wouldn't have mattered to anything. History would have played out pretty much the way it did. Tell us a little bit more about Iran-Contra. That must have been an interesting time to have been to have been involved in all of that. I think it's one of the great stories of how things go wrong. It's, it's one if you're looking at a bad case of covert action. But it starts with the best of motives. There was a CIA officer, a great officer in Lebanon, who was kidnapped, viciously tortured and murdered by the Hezbollah. And they sent tapes back. And the director of CIA, Bill Casey, and the president of the United States sat and had to watch those tapes. And I think they were so searingly painful that their mindset was, we have to do everything on the face of the earth to get him out and get all other hostages out. But there was a policy, longstanding, because a lot of terrorism in the 70s, and we developed a policy that was, you can't negotiate with it with them because they're going to kidnap another person, replace it. We have to have a policy telling kidnappers, American is, America is not going to deal with you. Otherwise, you're going to have more. 
So that was the policy, and they decided to make change that policy. They decided that they would look for other avenues. But then the White House had a contractor who came forward with a arms merchant who is I, I, I go into in my book, and there was a thick file. When I took over the branch, they gave me a file saying, here's the guy's file. We have burn notices out telling the world never use him. He's a total fabricator. But the White House believed in the guy, brought him to the agency's attention. I'm on record saying, and not that I, I arranged to have him polygraphed. I go into this in detail, which we can't do today. And he failed every question. So the operational director was supposed to be totally out of it. And this was in December when I thought I killed it, which I, George Schultz has an expression, no bad idea dies in Washington. And this is a classic example of it. So I thought it was dead. And the head of the Middle East came to me and not came, he called me and I went to see him and he said, you're not going to like this. You don't have to deal with the, the arms merchant. So they said, Jack, you're not going to like this, but we organized the flights. I never dreamed the flights would take off the ground. I thought it was a bad idea, and I was amazed. Very brave. The people that got off Ali North and one of my colleagues, they got on a plane, McFarland, the head of the NSC, and flew to Iran. I don't think they knew where they were going. I don't think they knew they were going to meet. I mean, an amazing thing. There were three hostages that were released not too long after, but not the three were kidnapped not too long after. The missiles were sold at a very inflated price. I was getting the money, but I wasn't seeing the second stream of money. And that went to Central America, and that's where Congress had passed the law, no money to Central America. And when that happened, you then had a violation of law. And that, you know, was the president witting? Was the director witting? Big trials, Congress, a tremendously powerful moment in politics in Washington. And again, when I look at it, it was ill-conceived, executed. But the thing that is unique about this, because I can't think of another case where part of what we had been authorized to do included uh, money, not money, the breaking of the law. So I know of no covert action that was taken independently of approval by the president of the United States. And this part the president also can't approve something that's a violation of congressional law. This was a violation, and it's a unique thing in history. And it's important to read how good people, nothing in it for them, but the good of the country, can wander down a bad path in the covert action arena. It really is an area that those that get into it can do, want to be helpful. Let's get it done. Need to reflect on the entire scope of what is covert action does it apply in this case. And that's the teacher and me speaking to anybody that'll listen. You were involved in so many interesting covert actions. What are some of the lessons you've learned? I realize this could easily be a whole podcast in and of itself, but just give our listeners a little bit of your wisdom. Well, let me let me give tribute to the wisdom of 13th century philosophers, right? And that is, you need to have a national security threat. They phrased it differently. You need to have tried all other means to prevent the problem. You need to be proportionality. You can't 
spend $50 billion and kill 100,000 people to save one person. So there's proportionality. Really important. Maybe the second thing. You have to have a realistic, you have a moral responsibility, a realistic chance of prevailing. You don't go in and say, well, let's give it the college try. And I think the protection of the innocence, and that's the way it's phrased in the 13th century, what they mean is collateral damage. You know, don't go in and ruin an entire country to to solve a, a minor problem. And then you get to the Jack Devine rules. And whether there's wisdom or not, I'll just tell you, you might you should well take advice on this. Make sure it's bipartisan support down the hill. Right? Make sure it's properly funded, that you have allies. And then these are things that philosophers weren't thinking about, right? But all of the others, all these other considerations, I think, are fundamental to evaluating going forward. And, and you have to have people on the ground that really want to do it and have the capability to do it. And the agency has to have its team and its allies and special forces ready to go and prepared. And all of that is well within our grasp. Tell us a little bit more about the title of your book and how covert action fits within that. Well, I think the title really refers to the spy master, in this case me, and how I look at the world and how I looked at intelligence operations and how they are done. But in this particular book, it's about how the Russians have done the operations, how we countered with them. And it's seeded with real spy cases. And what I try to do, as I said earlier, is go back and forth between then and now and to point out the lessons and things that are quite different. There's another part of spy mastering, which is how do you run an agent? How do you recruit an agent? What's your counterintelligence? How do you communicate with an agent, right? We're talking today about the action part, but there's an espionage part. That tends not to have the same ethical, political angst. People accept the fact that spying's been with us a long time. And it usually is not, it's rare to see a spy case become a political football in Washington. It's almost always the covert covert action. So I do spend time on both both aspects and try and weave it together. Because in order to have good covert action, you have to have agents. And you have to have people that can tell you what's the best way to put what button. So I tried to get them. But there's two disciplines. And I tried to meld them in the reading of the book and give it both a historic and a contemporary feel up to Putin and up to Joe, President Biden. And another aspect of the profession is counterintelligence. So I know that you knew uh, Rich James. Could you tell us how you knew him, what you thought about him, and where you were when the story dropped? I knew Rick Ames almost from the day I walked in the building. He and I were, I was doing Eastern Europe, almost analytical, lowest end of analytical identifying cables and taking the names out and putting the file. And he was doing Russia. And I got to know him, went to his wedding. Uh, he was an agency brat. As I told you, I, I didn't even have anybody in the U.S. government. He was, his father was a spy, uh, not a spy, a CIA operator. Not very effective. In fact, his file, somehow Rick got to read it, and it was disheartened to see that the father was viewed in about the same way he, he was viewed. 
but he had a, he knew the spy but he he lived in Bangkok with his father and was a reader of spy books and gave me one of the, his favorites Eric Ambler's one of his novels a coffin for Demetrius was the title I gave him one on the psychopathology of leadership and I think you know I should have given it really implies psychopathology of a traitor you know how do you look at people and what makes them tick so I went to his wedding but we separated but he was the very much a, a diehard American patriot, okay? But then I didn't see him for 25 years. And I saw him once, uh, because you go, I went abroad, he was abroad, never saw him. You sort of keep track of people's career. It was going all right, but nothing spectacular. But when I got to Rome, he was there. He was already signed there. We got reacquainted. But the problem was, I think he thought we were going to be friends again. I mean, not friends, but he would have leeways and he had a drinking problem that they brought him back and then dried him out and sent him out because the CIA really believes in dealing with alcoholic problems because first the humanitarian aspect of it, but you want people to feel that they can step out, look, I got a problem. You get it under control and then you go back. In other words, your career is not ruined. You want to keep people in the system. So he came back and first day he was in and wasn't a particularly nice discussion. I said, Rick, you had a drinking problem. If if I if you know I encountered you drinking and too much, you know you're going to leave. And then I called the deputy and to say keep an eye on him because he was in a different part of the building. I got to know him, and there was a an interesting incident that stuck in my mind with Rick. We actually had a Bulgarian come in and volunteer the work for CIA, and Rick was the Russia guy, so we we took him out and he took him out in the weekend to be tested with polygraph. When I came in the office that day, I ran into the polygrapher and I said, how did it go? He said, oh, that was terrible. We must have done it seven times. It was all, We couldn't make any sense out of it. So I was very angry because once you start, once you retest a couple of times, so what Rick was doing was deliberately retesting so that you'd have a blurred chart. I don't want to say charge down the hall, but you know, all six, five of me got about three inches from a nose and I told him what I thought about it. He didn't say a word. It was no explanation. I mean, he didn't try and defend himself. He didn't try and push back, as most people want. And I just, there's a Spanish word, ojo, like, look out. And I had this this sense, and it was a strange reaction. But it didn't mean he was a traitor. It just meant there's a strangeness in his, his mind. So if you fast forward, when they were hunting for him, I was back in Washington, and they asked for a private meeting confidential one. They said, well, we're looking for a spy. Do you think Rick Ames could be a spy? And I said, look, I know thousands of people over the years. I don't know one. I would say the answer is yes. This is the only one. And I can't, the only reason I can tell you that is when you ask, I get this flashback and there is something about that mindset that that I think he qualified. But the truth of the matter is when you look at Ames and you see this pattern in many spies, he had a very big ego in terms of how good he thought he was. He thought he understood. I mean, I, I took it in stride when I first met him. I didn't see it as a huge ego. I just saw it as a guy who knows a lot about the spy business, and he's passing it on to somebody, a neophyte, and I was welcome for the information. But what happened is he had this big idea of how smart he was. But, then his, but he was lazy, and he didn't work hard. And so you can be smart, you can be talented, 
But if you're lazy, you get a gap. You get a gap between your self-opinion and what's happening to your career. And when you get that, and this is no matter what country you're in, when you have that gap, it's in that area to get disaffection. And it's not about some ideological capitalism versus communism. It's really very personal. And so I think it was in that space that he was tormented and had unusual, unique access. The gods were not lined up on this one. He had one of the best access that you could have if you wanted to spy inside CIA. And you got him at a point in his marriage where he needed money. Everyone else thought he had money from her. Turns out she didn't have, she, their family had money. At the end, he sat outside the Russian embassy and had several drinks and then walked in. And he had a natural reason for walking in because as a CIA Russian expert working, the FBI, of course, he's going in. And it didn't raise a red flag. And he thought he could control the Russians. In other words, I'll give him a couple tidbits. And they played him like a violin because <laughs> his self-esteem and <laughs> didn't mean he was a good operator. And uh, the Russians played to that ego. They spotted it. A very good case officer on their side worked him. And he came back into the embassy in a second meeting and gave him the big dump, it's called. And he gave him the, the names of 11 Russians working for the CIA inside of Moscow. And all of them were executed. There was a TV, there are not many interviews with Ray. There's one by a, a woman, I can't remember which famous interviewer was doing the job. And she, she out of nowhere asked a question, Rick, do you, do you have trouble sleeping at night? And his answer was, there's momentary hesitation. I thought I would, but I didn't. And that's a psychopath. You know, you're talking about 11 people lost their lives, dedicated people, principled people. You were an employee of the CIA. You can rationalize that any way you want, but that's a psychopath. So it's in the mind. The second thing is how do you find spies? And this is, there's all types of rule, I mean, principles. And when Rick was arrested and I was chief of Latin America at that time, and, I, you know, the worst thing is to have somebody you know become a, be identified as a spy. It really ruins your day. So everybody around the building started wearing badges, never again. Someone handed them out. It was a brilliant idea. The only problem was by the time they handed them out, I was now upstairs as the associate, number two in terms of worldwide operations. And I knew there was a spy. You know, we thought it was in CIA. It turned out to be in the FBI. It was Robert Hansen. And we went looking for him. So I was never going to wear that hypocritic badge. And the truth of the matter is there's probably always a spy. My friends at CIA would like to hear this. It's part of the business. And you always must be alert. You know, it must be counterintelligence. The fact there will never, be, never again, you can't come up with enough forms, enough interviews. And the way most spies are really caught over and over again, and this speaks to the need for offensive CI, it's usually another spy in the opposing service that comes out and says, you have a problem. Any regrets about your career? You know, one of the things we talked about at the very beginning is when I look back at my career, I really felt somehow I was in a unique business that wasn't for everybody, but my DNA fit. And I believed in the mission, and I, I would say anybody that go into CIA, 
don't pretend. Don't go because you're James Bond or want to see the world. You really have the sense of mission because there are real day-to-day sacrifices. So I think in my career, I felt I did well with the help of a lot of people, mentoring and, and so on. And I think I ended up doing the types of things that I wanted to do. I've talked about some of those areas, and particularly around Contra, where I found troublesome. But even there, and even Ames, in a way, I'm wiser. Let me put it that way. You know more about life. You know more about the business because you've rubbed up against the bad. So I think I've, my career was a, a very lucky career. And there may be an event here, an event there that I wish didn't happen. But in the collective, I'm extraordinarily satisfied. I also felt, again, this sense of mission, that what I was doing was meaningful and and that it didn't violate the core principles that I think are important. And I think you have to have that peace or you're not you're gonna have a very rocky career. I think there are probably a couple of places around country. I thought I spoke up. I thought I really did a job in stopping it. And I was a junior person. But I also thought it wasn't going to happen. So I would say an regret might have been, maybe I was speaking a loud voice, but perhaps I should have shouted from the rooftops, right? But I didn't know enough. And I didn't have George Schultz's sense of this could really happen. And I learned a lesson, but that's a a different kind of, of regret. You sometimes worry about your family. Did you shortchange them by yanking around the world? And at least two or three times in my life, I've sort of addressed it with my children, adults now. And they tell me the same thing. We wouldn't change it for anything. There were indeed sacrifices. And I don't know whether they want to make me happy, which you always want your children to do. But I believe them. I believe that on on balance, it was a, a really good thing. But, you know, it's one thing to be yanked out of high school and shifted around. And they took the right path on it. And even some of the risk in Chile, I probably have would have thought differently if I wasn't so new to the business of the risk that my family were at. So it's in that realm. It's not in the realm of mission, jobs done. I think the, the final question is, remember when you said that the CIA had held on to your application to join I wondered if you had a copy of that, if it was declassified. <laughs> I, I think you're interested. Well, there's two reasons I'm not giving you. <laughs> One, it would, it would immediately dispel any hope that someone was going to find a good writer. So I hope I've learned something over the 30 years there. So that witty and, and flowing writing, it was, it was really sort of, well, I had a master's degree. I wasn't without some writing skill, but it was, it didn't. It didn't get into why I thought, and it was just, hey, you know, this sounds like a great thing that I have up during the CIA, and also showing you the letter. As I said, look, it was good enough to get me moved on to the next place, but I thought I, I really blew his socks off because that's why I got there, and so it's a little, it, it's sobering, and uh, it's, uh, it's good. It keeps your feet squarely planted ground. Although I married a woman that has kept my feet on the ground because she. She'll remind me when I think I've writing the book was painful at times because she would say, "You sound like a jerk here," <laughs> and you'd go off and you'd pout and you'd come back and you read it. And say, oh yeah, I do. That's terrible. Then rewrite it. So there you have it. 
Well, it's been fantastic to talk to you, Jack, and I look forward to seeing you next week here at the museum. I look forward to, to being there. and You've been very good to me, and I've been impressed with the museum and both the way it's structured. And, and it's just amazing how it's grown and, and importance. And at first, I, I didn't realize the impact, but part of what my writing is about is trying to get people to understand the business. But another really good way is if you go to the museum and you really studiously look at it, there's a story story being told. And then there's a great bookstore you don't want to miss out on. <laughs> and in that bookstore, you can pick up copies of Spy Master's Prison. Some tell me signed copies. exactly. Okay, Jack. Well, thanks ever so much for your time. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.